Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Well, today I'm going to begin a new series entitled The King is Coming Again Soon, a study in the book of Revelation. And what I want to do this morning to begin is go immediately to the text, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read the first three verses before we continue with the message. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Going to show my age just a little bit here, but I'll communicate very effectively with some of you. <laughs> About 20 years ago, a movie entitled A Beautiful Mind was released. And that movie told the story of one John Nash, who was a famed mathematician and a Nobel Peace Prize winner for his developments in the field. And as the story of the movie went, John Nash had been hired to do some secret work in cryptography. Cryptography. Now, if you know what cryptography is, good. If you don't, Google it. You'll get a better answer than what I could give you. But his work began to weigh on him. And as the movie tracks, he begins to suffer from paranoid schizophrenia in the movie. And, and is taken, stricken with it uh, very, very hard. And at times, the cinematography of the movie shows his work on a large board, if you remember this. And, and it, it, it's giving the image that he is working on this. And with all of the numbers and the letters and the, uh, the, the calculations and all of those symbols that are up there, you can tell how far I went in math. At times, though, the, the numbers and letters, things would begin to kind of emerge from the board. And that they would move around. And, and, and the, the, uh, the cinematography was trying to tell us what it was that he was seeing in his mind when he looked at that board. So it was communicating to us. And, and as you watch the movie, you go, oh, yeah, I, I can see that now. As if we were in the mind of John Nash. It was a very interesting movie that that told a great story, but I've always been struck by that movie and, and, and the brilliance of him, but, but the way that they communicated what he was kind of seeing on that board. And when you think about the book of Revelation, I think so often that's kind of how we perceive the book of Revelation. You know, it's kind of like those pictures they used to hang on the wall in front of you where if you stared at it correctly and long enough, a different image would emerge. Oh! <gasps> Now, I, I think this, these pictures were horrible because my understanding is they were built on dots and the dots were different colors, slightly. But if you saw them correctly, you would see the image that would just kind of jump off the page at you. And, 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 and I'm colorblind. So here I stand in front of these pictures 
And they go, you're too close, Lane. You know, cross your eyes and focus on the center. All I can hear in the back of my mind is my mother and my grandmother going, if you keep doing that, your eyes are gonna get frozen that way. And, and I'm like, I'm just trying to see the picture. But when we come to the book of Revelation, it seems to me so often we perceive it in this way that, oh, we're gonna study Revelation. You know, we, 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 we have these images conjured up about this book and, and it's not for no reason. I mean, there, throughout the ages, it has been a book that has been handled in this way, but I just feel like many Christians perceive approaching the book of Revelation in this way. It's really not pertinent to our life today. It has to do with some time then more than it does now. Now, let me make a few admissions. Number one, Revelation is complex, there is a certain fear stricken in the heart of one who entails to teach it to others. It is unique. There are challenges to the book of Revelation that are unique to any other book in the scriptures. But Revelation is not a book given only for theological elites. It's not only for the scholars to argue over. As a matter of fact, it is noted that Revelation is the only book in John Calvin in his life that he never wrote a commentary on. As a matter of fact, in the Middle Ages, many of the reformers just simply gave Revelation almost no notoriety because of its complexity and its uniquenesses. Doesn't mean they were right. They were brilliant people. They were not perfect people. And that's what we need to remember. And so I strike a balance this morning in beginning this study by wanting to make Revelation simple for us to understand but not to lean to simplicity for us to dismiss this is my aim today revelation like every other book in the bible was a book a letter written for the church we are the church friends we are the church and the writer of revelation is with us this is what we're going to see today the one who authored the book is with us and he wants us to understand it and he wants us to live it out. Any shroud of confusion that surrounds is not the intent of the author, neither the human author of the Apostle John nor the divine author of our triune God. But the shroud of confusion so often arises from the misconceptions, even the mishandlings of the text. I love how one pastor friend stated it. If you want to understand Revelation, you need to put down the news headlines and take up the Old Testament. Because the book of Revelation is the culmination of God's word for us. I want you to see, not just today, but over the next number of months as we entail this study, that Jesus is the sovereign king who is coming again. And in this we set our hope. And he calls Christians to live with priority and urgency to make him known in all the world. You see, the word revelation just means divine revealing. 
The word means an uncovering of something that is hidden, the making known of what we would not be able to find out for ourselves, but it makes plain that the book is not introducing a book of human wisdom nor a matter of discussion over philosophical or theological problems. Rather, it's revelation. It's God setting forth what he wants to make known to us about Jesus Christ and his will. And so we begin with this understanding that God in revelation has not hidden something from us, but he is revealing something to us for us to believe. Revelation bears witness to testify to Jesus Christ. It culminates the scriptures, as I said, bringing together the Old Testament and the New. As you may have often heard, uh, in the Old Testament, it is Christ veiled in the New Testament Christ revealed. And when the writer brings these together in the book of Revelation, we see that in the 404 verses of the book, 278 allude to the Old Testament scriptures. The majority of those scriptures being from the prophet Ezekiel and the prophet Daniel foremost. One of the complexities and uniquenesses of Revelation is it's not just written in a single genre of scripture. And this is important for us to understand what's being said, but also to apply it to our life. There are three specific types of genre that are implemented in the writing. The first type is what we think of as prophecy. But the uniqueness about Revelation and the way that it implements prophecy is that it's not only the prophecy of the New Testament, which is the foretelling of what has already been revealed, but it is also implementing Old Testament type of prophecy, which is, thus saith the word of the Lord, the foretelling of what God is going to do. So we see the two types of prophecy come together of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the foretelling and the forthtelling of what is to come and what is going to be revealed, but also what has been revealed and the emphasizing of it for our purposes. So prophecy is the first type of genre. A second type of genre is the epistle or the letter. Revelation is a letter written by a man to a people. It's written by the Apostle John, and just a little bit of backstory on the Apostle John. That uh, we are, uh, we understand that that this person who is the author here, the Apostle John, is also the writer of First, Second, and Third John. He is the writer of the Gospel of John. But to me, most notably, what you need to know about John is that he was the youngest of all of the apostles. Some say he was as young as fourteen when Jesus called him to follow him. And, and the, the text tells us that John was the, he was the disciple Jesus loved. It doesn't mean that Jesus didn't love the other disciples. It does mean there was a favor given to John that the other disciples just kind of understood. And why was that? Well, likely because John was the little brother of everybody. So everybody was just kind of looking out for John. When they sat down to eat, John sat next to Jesus. Why? He's the little brother. He, you know, we know the baby of the family. We, we get what we want, right? Others just know that's how it works, you know. That's who John was. But now he's an old man. He's an old man who's writing about a long life of walking with Jesus. And what a blessing it is to 
Hear the words that he writes to the people. It's a real man, a real person writing to real people. Churches of Asia Minor today, modern day Turkey, who were in a real historic setting, whom God had moved powerfully in the founding of those churches, but many of them were in harsh times and hard days, and they were struggling. They were struggling. So it's a letter written. It's personable for us. It's also in the third type of genre, apocalyptic. An apocalyptic genre is one that is used symbolically in its writing to unmask what would otherwise remain hidden. What we find in the book of Revelation is not to be found in human wisdom, is not to be learned in human understanding, but rather it is revealed because it is unmasked by God himself. That's how we should approach the book. The combination of the three genres make Revelation unique, but it also provides for us a key for our understanding and our interpretation as we walk through it. Revelation holds the promise of blessing. Look at verse 3 at what he undertakes to tell us. For both the reader and the hearer, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John begins by declaring what revelation is intended to produce God's blessing upon our life. You want God's blessing? Read and hear the words of God's revelation. Revelation. And this blessing is known as the reader reads and hears and keeps what is written. That's what verse 3 tells us. Look what he says. To those who keep what is written in it for the time is near. You see, the opening verses do not conclude with a reference to chronology as we often think of time. John's not measuring his, his time by the, the, the watch and the hours of the day or the days of the week or the weeks of the month or the months of the year based on the calendar. But rather he's emphasizing the priority and the urgency of us responding to this message because of the nearness of time. He's telling us the time is near. There is an urgency with which we must receive and hold the message. One scholar says that referencing God's time is what John is about doing here. He's not referring to our measurement of time. He's referring to the quality of time rather than just the quantity of time. And God is revealing something that those who hear and believe might be able to live in light of what has been revealed for them, this new knowledge. One scholar says he's not, wish, he's not wishing merely to stimulate interest, which I fear is too often the reason we approach Revelation. Curiosity. But rather he is writing to influence action. You see, because Scripture is our guide to conduct as well as our source of doctrine. Another scholar says this, it's true that the early church lived in the expectancy of the return of the Lord. And it's the nature of biblical prophecy to make it possible for every generation to live in the expectancy of the end. For us to relax and say where is the promise of his coming and to become a scoffer of divine or is to become a scoffer of divine truth. But rather the biblical attitude for us to hold is to take heed to watch for you know not when the time will come. You see, revelation for us is as much a warning as it is an invitation to believe what we hear about eternity now so that it impacts the way we live in the here and now. The person who wants to receive God's blessing 
will hear and will heed his revelation in Jesus Christ for eternity and live according to it now. That's why I've titled the series, The King is Coming, again and soon. Two emphases that we will track throughout this series. The first emphasis is this, the king is coming again. This is our priority, friends, our priority. It is the doctrinal conviction of those who are Christians, who trust in Jesus Christ by faith for the forgiveness of our sin and for eternal life in him. It is the conviction of our teaching from Scripture that the one who came, the one who conquered sin by giving up his own life on the cross in our place for our sin, who was buried and three days later was raised from the dead, who ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns sovereignly and supremely. The king who has come will come again. That's not up for debate. There's a period at the end of that sentence. The priority of our life is not only in the one whom we know, Jesus Christ, but it is in the foundational understanding of what he has taught us about what he has done for us, what he is doing in us, and what he will one day come again to take us home to be with him. We obey because Jesus has conquered And he is empowering us to walk with him. Throughout the series, we will be challenged to give priority to the teachings of Jesus Christ revealed in the word of God as the guiding, governing authority of our life. But the second word that I use here comes from the final phrase as well of verse 3, for the time is near. Not only will we be challenged to make it our priority, we will be challenged to live with urgency. Urgency. What do you mean by urgency? Are you talking about some kind of anxiety that we need to live because we're out of kilter with the world? Are you talking about some kind of anxiousness because the world's not going the way it's supposed to go or the way we want it to go? No, friends, anxiety is what comes without faith. It's what arises from within us when we live in disobedience to God's word. I'm not talking about an urgency or quickness of spirit because of something being out of kilter, but I'm talking about an urgency that is stirred up within us because of the importance, because of the priority, but also the imminence of what is transpiring. Just as we heard from a scholar a while ago, it was right for the church of the first century to believe that Jesus could return any moment, but it is also right for you and I to believe the same thing and to live our lives in light of it. As a matter of fact, it is so right, it is wrong to live any other way. And I think we've become too complacent too often. Because we know we're good with God. Little else matters. And that's neither the doctrine of the New Testament or of the Scriptures, nor the teaching of God's Word. Priority. Urgency. So what does Revelation call us to give priority and urgency urgency to in our life? To the word of God. 
to living in obedience by faith today in light of what it says. Let me ask you this, to actually ask some things of yourself in considering this idea of priority and urgency. Ask yourself, how do I give priority to God's word in my life? How do I give priority to God's word? Do I seek the Lord in his word as the source and the strength of my life? Do I seek his word to know and to trust him? Do I search it and study it to understand his will and the leading of his word for my life? You say, but his word doesn't speak to the decisions that I'm making. It absolutely does, friends. Maybe not in the way that you run at it. There's not an area, there's not an issue of your life that the word of God's not already spoken to. The question is, are we listening to heed as we hear? Or do we come to the word of God just to go, Lord, today give me something to feel better about what I've chosen to do. In a world overrun with therapy, emotionalism, even with mental health, There's a reason the church is struggling. It's because far too often we've resigned ourselves to live with the best help we can find in this world without seeking the helper who is the divine one beyond this world. And friends, I don't make light of any of that. If you know me, you know that. I'm not making light of those issues. I'm simply saying this, that we've confused our faith by them instead of infusing our faith into them. How do you respond when the word confronts the reality of your life? When what you know the word to say stands in opposition to what you've chosen to believe or to live? How do you respond to that? Let me ask it another way. When was the last time, because of the priority of your conviction about the word of God and his revelation of Jesus Christ in it, when was the last time you said no to something? That's not the way I live. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I've been washed by the blood. I'm filled with the spirit of God. I don't live that way. We don't live that way. No. Won't do that. Won't think that. Won't be that. Whatever the case may be. When was the last time you said no to something? When was the last time you said yes? Lord, this is who you've redeemed me to be. And you've given me the the gifts, the strengths, and the the expertise, or the wisdom, or the desire, and the passions to do this. And I want to go all in. And when is the last time you said, but I want to be all in for your glory, not just for my good. When was the last time you sat down with your family and you you led your family or you taught your family or you you led your family to follow and you you even talked to your kids, uh, kids too young to fully understand, but you brought them into your own processing and going, you know, kids, here's what we're dealing with or here's the situation of our life, but I want you to know we're looking to Jesus. We're asking Jesus to lead us in the midst of this. We're seeking the Lord for this decision or this situation or this circumstance or or this comfort or to take the glory of this joy. 
And you helped your children understand how you're setting the priority of Jesus Christ as Lord at the front of your family, of your thinking, and of your living. Do your kids understand that obeying Jesus is the priority of your life? Whether it's in your decisions, in your schedule, and in your money management, or, 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 or whatever the case may be, wherever you may be found in life today. You see, revelation begins with a blessing for those who will hear and heed God's revelation. Not just for anybody that shows up at church, not just for anybody that claims the name of Christian, not just for anybody that tags along and is willing to go along, but for Christians who obey the Lord with priority and urgency. Not that look at the word and go, well, this is important. And we're going to get to it at some point. But if God revealed it and spoke it today, I'll take that as his will for me and trust what he wants to bring from it. You see, priority means first in all, at all times. Urgency means it matters now, not one day when. Today's invitation for every person is to hear and to heed, to trust in Jesus and to walk by faith in him for the fullness of life for all eternity. And so next, John introduces us to the why. The why of his writing and God's glorious plan and our participation. Look at verse 4 through 8. He says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is where we understand it to be a letter written. John, in very customary manner of writing personal letters in that day, introduces himself as the human author of what is transpiring, but he will communicate to us and specifically to the churches that he was writing to that it was the Lord who gave him this message. So we see a divine author, but we also see a human kingdom. This book was written to the seven churches of Asia Minor, today's modern Turkey. And they're not only churches that were, or they're not the only churches that were in existence at that time, but what it is showing us is that there was a relevance for all of the churches that existed at that time. You say, well, how do we know this? Well, throughout our study, several numbers will become important to us. The numbers four, the number seven, the number 10, the number 12, these are all numbers that we will begin to see employed in the literary styles to bring emphasis. And one of the ways that John introduces this to us is he addresses seven specific churches in Asia Minor, knowing that's not all the churches that were in existence of those days, but those are the seven that the Lord has told him to write to. And in the representing of that seven, we see that the message becomes universal 
universal for all churches who would have this read. You see, back in that day, not everybody had their own copy of God's word. Back in that day, it would be written on a scroll and given to a carrier and that carrier would take it and either he or someone else would become the reader of the word. And so the scroll would be rolled out and the reading of the word would take place in the worship time. And that's how the letter would be carried out. And this letter would have gone to Ephesus most likely first and then basically done a circle as we see in the listing of the churches. Every church on each week successively would have heard the reading of John's letter to them. And they would have known this is the Apostle John. This is the one who walked with Jesus. This is the one who has written the gospel uh, for us that we have heard read. This is the one who has written letters to us to remind us of the love of God, to remind us of the fellow of the saints to remind us of these things but here he is writing very likely towards the end of the first century and he is speaking to them about what God is saying to them it's a letter written from God to his people he acknowledges the, tri, tri, the triune nature of our God. Him who is and who was and who is to come refers to God the Father. The seven spirits is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Again, the number seven is not denoting seven different spirits, but is reminding us and introducing us to this idea that the Spirit of God is among each of the churches simultaneously, constantly, and continually. But he points us to Jesus Christ in verse 5, who is the faithful witness of whom? Of God. He is the firstborn of the dead. Because he has been raised from the dead, we too shall be raised, we learn in the New Testament. And he is the ruler of the kings on earth. He's the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. It is our triune God who loves us and he has freed us, he goes on to tell us at the second part of verse 5 through verse 7. And he has done this for us. He has freed us from our sins because of his love for us. But he has made us a kingdom of priests. Wait wait a minute, I thought because Jesus came, we didn't need a priest. We don't. We no longer need a mediator between us and God. Jesus has become that. And because of the Spirit of God that takes up habitation, that comes to live within us, now we uh, relate directly to God. But not only do we not need a priest, we've now been made priests of God's kingdom on this earth. We don't mediate for other people with God in the sense of the Old Testament priests, but we are God's representatives on this earth. We are his faithful witness. These seven churches were taught to understand the role that they were playing in the earth for this time, and you and I should heed those same words for us as well. Christian, God's people, bear witness to that which has been revealed, that Jesus has come, that he has died, that he ascended, into heaven, that he sits at the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns today, and one day he's coming again soon. Even so, amen. You know what those words mean? That's right. We agree. So be it. It is an expression of convictional and spiritual affirmation. And that's why he puts them in here. The triune God has given his revelation that his glory might be known and made us his kingdom of priests to bear witness on earth to all people of Jesus' love 
and the freedom we have in him. This is the why. God has a plan for us here, friends. And the revelation of his word involves our participation as faithful witnesses. Finally, John turns and he sees the voice that is speaking to him. Go back to verse 9 and look what he says about the one who speaks to him. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one. I died and behold I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen. Those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand. And the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What a moment for John. What a remembrance for us. John acknowledges the reality of the world in light of our new status with God, that we are a kingdom, but our kingdom of priests exists in a world of great tribulation. And in that tribulation, just as John was, we patiently endure Historically, John was on the Isle of Patmos because he was in political exile for preaching the gospel. Don't forget that, friends. That's the way it worked then. And when he received the vision, he describes what he received. And he tells us it was like, it was like. So he's not telling the actual description, but rather an effectual description to help us understand what was taking place. And the voice was like a trumpet commanding him to write. And there were seven golden lampstands that were receiving it. And in the middle of the lampstands was this most glorious, majestic one who was Jesus among the people that are his. Holding the seven stars in his hand, Jesus tells us what those are for. The seven stars are the seven golden lampstands and the angels of the seven churches And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And it tells us John immediately fell down in worship. He was overwhelmed in some ways with fear. 
Because even though he knew God, the, the, the glory of his presence was not something he, in his physical capacity, could withstand. But he said, Jesus reached down and touched him and lifted him up, removed his fear by revealing the glory of his nature and the glory of his being, the glory of his authority. And he commanded him to write. Don't miss this, friends. Jesus brought a message for his people. But first, he drew near to his messenger. This is the heart of God who comes near to us to reveal himself to us that we might know him and that we might see him for who he is and worship him in the splendor and the majesty of his glory. That's what John did. No, it wasn't a literal rendering, an effectual one. It was more to think not in actual depiction terms, but rather in the effect of the vision that he received of Jesus' eternal glorious rule and reign upon him. And the, the splendor of his glory tells us it was overwhelming and of which no one could stand before him, but also of which none who trust in him would be crushed or destroyed. John's first response to Jesus was worship. It's the effect of overwhelming glory that strikes fear. It's the compassion and love of God that turns fear to overwhelming joy and gladness. You see, of all the ways that Revelation has been approached and interpreted, this is the way John introduces the book to us. It is God's message unveiled to see the triune God for who he is, not an entertainment in some kind of mystic sci-fi imagination. We're invited to behold the King of glory in his enthroned majesty. We're invited to trust him and to worship him and to, to draw near because he has drawn near to us. We are sent to declare the message that he has given of the glory of his kingdom to all people from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue who will see him. And though we live in a sin-stained world and we must patiently endure many hurts and hardships, Friends, we serve the sovereign king, the Lord who rules and who reigns over all things. And Revelation is inviting us to respond to this king, to King Jesus, who alone is worthy. I want to conclude today with three brief questions for you as we begin this study to form a faithful response to Jesus' revelation. And I would argue to you that these questions should form our approach to a whole study of who he is. Three questions for our faithful response to his revelation. Question number one, will you hear God's revelation and heed it as your invitation to trust in Jesus? Do you hear that? It's not just a message to understand. It's an invitation to receive to enter into a relationship with God. Christian and non-Christian alike are called to faith. Why? Because John tells us that Jesus tells him that even those who pierce the side of Jesus will see him. He 
reminds us, even from the outset, that there will be a day that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess on heaven, on earth, and under the earth. There will not be one who has lived who will miss the return of Jesus Christ and not be laid before his presence. Friends, guard yourself in the hearing of this message, not to simply be entertained, not to be amused, nor only enlightened, but rather to be illumined by the Spirit of God, to hear the voice of God by the Spirit living within you of the living Lord Jesus Christ, to come into his presence, to be lifted up because of the work that he has done for us and finished upon the cross for us, and his Spirit living within us, and to hear the message, to heed it, to repent of our sins and to walk in his righteousness in this world. The second question that I would propose to you is this. How will you prioritize God's revelation for your life? To live with urgency to tell all people of our triune God's eternal truth, the King is coming again soon. He has not revealed himself merely to inform, but to be obeyed. It's not one to put away for one day when you may need it, but to align your whole life with him now through it. God's calling every person to action for his kingdom, of which we as Christians have been made priests now to call the world to faith in Jesus Christ. And so I ask you, is there any area of your life that you know is not aligned with the explicit will of God as revealed in his word? Is there any place where you are not living according to the truth of God's word? Revelation is an invitation to repent. And to put your faith in Jesus Christ, maybe to become a Christian for anyone who has never become a Christian, but for those of us who are Christians, to make sure that there is no part of our heart, no part of our life that has not been fully surrendered to him and submitted to his lordship in our life. Priority and urgency to obey will become the key to God's blessing and the strength of his power in our heart to walk with him daily. The third question, are you worshiping the triune God in the glory of his majesty so that his revelation fills your heart and commands your life? God's not calling us just to go do something for him. He's inviting us to come near, to be filled with his presence so that when he sends us out, we will be as the apostle John was filled to overwhelming and overflowing experience with God through Jesus Christ. He calls us to serve his glory by being filled to overwhelming praise and worship that we might be empowered by his presence. Let me ask you this, what are you most overwhelmed by today? The reality of the world, the situation in which we find ourselves? Are you overwhelmed by your schedule, by the demands of your job, or maybe even the demands of your family, the hardships and the hurts and the trials that you're in the midst of? God makes light, but he, hear me, God belittles none of them, but he is before all of them. And before he commands you to do anything, he invites you to come because of Jesus Christ, to rise up in his presence 
and to worship his name and to be filled with his being. Won't you do that today?